2: 106.5 AM,
1: Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and one hundred five oh AM
2: Palm
1: Springs. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be.
3: Welcome back into the house of uh, mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren, and co-host today, Mr. David North Martino.
4: Oh, it's my full name today.
3: Yeah, yeah. I'm all, I'm being polite. <laughs> I'm
4: being polite. <laughs> what to, is this? Who has to, taken over, Al?
3: No, I'm getting close to holidays, you see, and then you can oh. you, you'll be <laughs> doing So I got to be nice to you before you do the work. Okay. Otherwise, you'll be running, right. you'll be nasty on air, saying bad things about me when I'm gone. You
4: know, Would I ever do that?
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. maybe. Yeah, yeah. I can see it. I can see it. Just be a whole big, huge gab session about me. Hmm. You know, I could see it. whole team. There'll be shows dedicated to uh, me, and you'll be writing it down on a whiteboard, and everybody will be going over all the details. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm down. <ready> to... <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah,
3: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Anyway. <laughs>
3: Well, now speaking of details in murder, we've got uh, we're going to talk about the book, the science of murder, and it's forensics of Agatha Christie. Now, all the way from the UK, we have uh, Carla Valentine. So, thank you for coming on the show.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
3: Well, this is wonderful. But I, I before we get into this uh, fascinating book, I I want to talk about because you have a, a this is the first time I've ever um, interviewed a fiction writer or you know, a writer that sort of has your background or kind of what you do for a living. So let's talk about you a little bit first, so the listeners know kind of who you are. So who is Carla Valentine?
2: Well, the easiest way to describe it is to say that I'm a mortician. Um, But I think uh, over in the UK, I worked for a decade on autopsies with, you know, forensic pathologists, um, removing the organs from the deceased, um, taking samples, replacing them, making them um you know ready for viewing for the families and then i've kind of moved on to conserving old victorian human tissue specimens in an old museum so basically I, I kind of work with the dead and i've got one foot in the past and i've got like one foot in the present of the dead and uh and that's what my my interests are really in my whole career
3: it's 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 interesting um how did you get into that kind of a business?
2: It sounds odd to say that I, I did want to do it ever since I was really young. Um, and I I loved biology when I was at school when I was about sort of like seven or eight. Um, and I was reading Agatha Christie and I was kind of getting this idea about forensic science and forensic pathology without it really being explicitly described as as that subject if you see what i mean so i just became really fascinated with the the human body um how it's sort of like canvas that will show you information you know about the kind of diseases that you've had through your life and the way that you died um, and then how you can connect that to crimes in in the whole sort of forensic sphere so i really was interested in it from from a really young age about eight eight or nine Um, and i went to university studied forensic science i i worked for an embalmer for a year to get some Work experience and um, finally got a job as an anatomical pathology technician, which is what I then did for the next 10 years.
0: Wow.
3: A
2: lot of bodies.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, what kind of food do you like when you work as an embalmer? Like, what do you. you, I (laughs) I mean, I. Well, it's just uh, what I ask is because we see a lot of shows and they 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 have one or two different types of embalmer, but quite often they're very callous or they're very, um, you know, very into it and stuff. So, like, how did were you able to eat like during the middle of going fluid?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, to be honest, when you when you work with the dead, particularly uh, when I was. pathology technician it's actually incredibly physical work anyway because you're sort of doing a lot of physical maneuvering and um, manual sort of handling and you just get really really hungry because you're you know because you're tired I think a lot of people became vegetarians and and things like that but I'm not I I you know really enjoy a steak or some some ribs or whatever so (laughs) Yeah.
3: Me off, no. Medium rare ribs with yeah. Uh, gravy. Yeah, yeah. Just, <laughs> steak. Yeah, it's a whole new meaning to steak and kidney pie.
2: Exactly. Yeah, you know, and, and things being blue. I don't know if you have that phrase over there, but we, you know, we want something really blue, blue. rare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. so yeah, no, I'm, I'm not vegan or anything like that. I am um, I I you know enjoy some. I enjoy good meat though. I, you know, I don't I don't like sort of. Factory meat type thing. That's oh, right, a nice organic right. steak for me, I think.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. You, you do it or don't, right? Yeah. Do it right or yeah, exactly. don't. That's, I always say that too, right? Either <laughs> yes. it's, you know, the fake stuff never works.
2: Yeah, exactly. If you're going to do it, do it right or don't do it at all.
3: <laughs> yeah. It's like sugar and butter and all that. Either do it or don't. Yeah. You know, don't try to do all that other stuff. You know, <laughs> just just don't then you know but.
2: i can tell you what, what that will do to your insides anyway you know things like margarine you, you'd be better off eating, eating butter once a month than eating margarine every day so
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess it's true that would probably change your um your own eating habits and what you mm. you know because you would know better
2: yeah sure it, it definitely can do i mean you know I, i'm not a smoker i'm, I'm very sort of Again, smoking, because I've seen the damage that it can do to lungs. You know, you can see the cirrhosis of the liver. And it does make you very aware that we, we are these really intricate, you know, fragile pieces of, you know, of meat, really, and, and, and intricate machines. And if we, you know, if we don't treat them right, then they, if they can go wrong in a lot of different ways. So it just gives you a lot of respect, I think, for the human body.
3: Yeah, I've always thought of Dave as a real piece of meat. <laughs> <laughs> But that's that's a whole other um, show. Yeah, we've got. Um, but so this is really really cool. So how did you decide to um, get into writing something like the science of murder? You know, like the forensics of Agatha Christie. So what what was kind of the um, what was on your mind when you started putting this together?
2: Well, I'd um, I'd already written one book about my um, sort of life working in mortuaries, and that's that's out in the U.S. is *The Chick and the Dead*. Um, and I was actually due to write my second book, um, focusing more on bones and ossuary displays. Um, and then actually I was. Uh, I got pregnant and COVID happened. So the plan had been to go around Europe and and write about, you know, all these different ossuaries. And obviously I couldn't do that with being pregnant and then COVID. So I was sat there just watching an Agatha Christie adaptation, you know, the David Suchet ones um, that are just really, really lovely to watch. And he started to talk about rifling in a gun. And I thought, well, that's an interesting forensic reference for, for Agatha to have used if it was you know, really in the book. So I went and dug the book out and looked for the reference, and it was in the book. And I that was just what gave me the idea, really, because I thought, I'm sure nobody's really done that before. Nobody's looked at the forensics of Agatha Christie. So once I started to, to, to research that, I realized that, yeah, nobody had done it. So it was, it was great.
3: Do you find that, um, in general, um, fictional crime writers... And murder noir type books and authors are not as accurate as they should be. Maybe in in dealing with this,
2: I think there's two different different camps really. When you when you think about this, I mean, I, I literally just did a, a a panel discussion about this at Harrogate Crime Festival. But there are some people who write um, fiction that are in the fields themselves so they're obviously very you know, very aware of 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 how it is in real life so i'm thinking of people here like kathy reichs who's obviously a forensic anthropologist as well as a writer um patricia cornwell who worked in the medical examiner's office um, so i think we and we get asked a lot of questions by writers you know as, as more true technicians we get a lot of emails to say am i, am I getting this correct um, and also consult on films and things like that so i think there are a lot of people out there that really want to get that accuracy um, and then there are others that you know m- Perhaps the accuracy isn't really as necessary. Maybe it's a bit more dramatic than it is realistic.
4: Well, in the same vein, you know, you talk about rifling and stuff. Uh, do you know how Agatha Christie went about her own research? Because I know she had to have knowledge of, you know, fingerprints, firearms, you know, handwriting, blood splatter, all that stuff.
2: Yeah. So, so basically, that when she first wrote um, her first book, *The Mysterious Affair at Styles*, um, there was a poisoning death in this book, and that was because she was actually working in the in the dispensary um, of a hospital during the war. So she she already had this really great encyclopedic knowledge of of, of poisons, you know, different chemicals like that. Then, obviously, became famous as Agatha Christie, um, and you know, wrote a few more books. And she she doesn't talk in her autobiography about how she researched, but she does talk about the fact that she would read criminalistic journals um she was also part of what they called the detection club so all of the sort of lot of detective um fiction writers of the day and then like dorothy l sayers um gk chesterton they were all part of a group who they would have um speakers come and talk to them you know people who are pathologists or lawyers and talk to them about criminalistics and criminal cases so i, I think she you know, picked up a few books as well. A lot of forensics, um, famous forensic scientists like Edmund Lopard had written books around the time that she was kind of writing hers. So so I think she did a variety of different things. So she doesn't talk about it specifically, but she kind of gives you an indication of what she did.
3: At the end of the day, what are you going to tell us about Agatha Christie? Oh, well,
2: it's <laughs> definitely, she's, she's not a, a sort of cosy crime writer at all. She's definitely got this, um, you know, sort of, Aura of just being hanging around in vicarages and having crumpets and things like that, and people are really surprised when they see that half of her books are set in the Middle East because she lived there for half of the year um, with her archaeologist husband. So it's definitely the idea of like um, cosy crime. It's not it's not all about cosy crime, and it's not all about um, sort of things like arsenic, um, which don't leave a mark or you know don't leave any signs of violence. There's there's some quite gory. Um, stories that she's written. She references decomposing bodies. She talks about, you know, blunt force trauma. And some of, the, some of the books are really quite um, surprisingly dark. Um, I'm thinking in particular of Endless Night, which is one that she wrote towards the end of her life. And it's just unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, so I think the, the idea that she's this cosy old woman, we'll throw that out and we'll start to talk about blood spatter and, you know, autopsies and, and all that sort of thing.
3: So she, she's a savage.
2: Yeah. (laughs) The savage is one could also be at the same time as being a lady in the sort of like 1930s and 1940s.
3: Well, yeah, she could still be a lady and have bodies in the basement.
4: Yeah.
3: (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, it's what do you get out of this for yourself? Like what happens to you um, when you go through someone like Agatha Christie and you're doing this book Mm -hmm. at the end of it? Do you, do you find that you kind of, I don't know, do you change in the way that you handle forens- forensics and maybe what you think of writers sometimes?
2: Well, I, I, I with working in the museum um, and obviously trying to communicate about uh, medical specimens to modern you know, pathology and medical students, it's really interesting to have this sort of um, link with Agatha Christie and true crimes, because some of the specimens that we have in our collection have been, prepared by pathologists that were working on the most famous crimes that Agatha is talking about. So things like the Dr. Crippen case, the Brides in the Bath, the Crumbles murders. These are all Bernard Spilsbury cases. Um, And Bernard Spilsbury is a really famous pathologist in the UK. And um, it it sort of gives me this kind of link between um, real life crime, you know, solvers um, and what the the, the importance of these historical specimens are. um, Because... I didn't know that Agatha used them in in that sense um, in her books until I started to research it. So it's just interesting knowledge that I want to impart to other people as well, particularly if they're into crime fiction, because, you know, it was accurate for its day. And it's really quite astounding that she, you know, she got so many things right.
3: Yeah, I think that's, but that's fascinating. I think that's what makes a good writer, because the worst thing in the world is is reading a book or watching a program mm. that's supposed to be taking place in a certain date and time, and they get things wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think one, there's two really interesting um, things about Agatha Christie, and the first, I think, is that she actually coined the phrase the scene of the crime. Um, so obviously we use that right, right across the board within forensics, but the first known, um, sort of recording of that phrase is in her book *The Murder on the Links* from 1923. So she, you can see there she's already kind of contributed to the, you know, forensic sciences like landscape. Um, and similarly, in the first book, um, *The Mysterious Affair at Style, she equipped Hercule Poirot with something that was akin to a crime scene examiner's kit, but the crime scene examiner's kit didn't exist at that point. Um, so she actually kind of thought of that herself (laughs) and it was only in 1924 that bernard spillsbury kind of came up with the idea of having a a crime scene examiner's kit because the police were just picking up chunks of human flesh you know with their fingers they were you know mopping up blood with their own handkerchiefs um so so she sort of pre you know she she had the idea for that before it actually was a thing in real life
3: yeah it's pretty amazing that they were they they would just use their hands and Mm. fingers and all the (laughs) All the the crime scenes and the parts. It just never crossed their mind, I guess. Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, you know, before people knew about the potential for DNA to be, you know, contaminants and, and, you know, hairs and things like that. People didn't realize they had to be so careful. And now the more analytical we've got and the harder we can, you know, the deeper we can look, the more careful we have to be. Because, you know, we can pick up DNA on crime scenes from microscopic Globules of saliva, you know, from somebody talking. Um, So yeah, so it's just interesting that you can see that sort of arc of development of the science with the true crimes through her books as well.
4: Yeah, well, that's what I was. You know, I was going to ask that. uh, You know, the state of forensics for for Agatha Christie during her lifetime, but um, now that you've gone over that, it makes me wonder. um, You know, did she contribute to this increase, this arc of? you know, better forensics through through her work?
2: I think she she probably did, I would say, in a slightly more tangential way, possibly, because, I'm, I mean, I'm sure you, you guys are aware of uh, Frances Glasner who is um, a, an American lady who really contributed to forensic science um, over in the U.S. And I, I think, I, I know that they, they've they talked about crime scene miniatures, which is what I've uh, francis Gasnelli sorry uh, created and i know that uh, christy talked about miniatures and maps and things like that in her books so there's definitely some crossover there um and as i say it's more about contributing to just this, this idea of um I, I don't know yeah just just Yes yeah, it's difficult to say that she did contribute but sort of in a more tangential way if you see what I mean
4: maybe she inspired
2: yes yeah some and forensics
4: I think, uh, some future forensics
2: <laughs> yeah exactly and i'm hoping that like with my book it will then she, she'll then continue to inspire um you know the new generation yeah. of uh, forensic pathologists or forensic scientists so we shall see
3: mm. Yeah, I I don't think the human race has a chance. But um, <laughs> you know, after You're the so last, positive, after COVID, that was that was enough. Right? After the way the way people handled COVID, that was I like,
2: know, I know. It's
3: just it's got to be crazy for someone that's in the science business to all of a sudden see kind of the outlandish sort of claims that you hear during something like that. You must have just been going to... Yeah, I eyes, mean, it's, right, it's the know.
2: same as we sort of hear with, when we have the anti-vaccination people as well, all these sort of crazy, crazy claims. And, um, you know, it was, it's been a very interesting time for all of us, I think. But I think mean, one of the important things to remember with COVID and, and um, wearing these masks is I, I just found it interesting how how few illnesses I've had in general, you know, because we're using public transport and things in big cities. You don't just pick up things like COVID. You pick up colds and flus and norovirus. So it was quite an interesting experience to not get any sniffles or anything for a long time.
3: Yeah, I thought it was amazing. (laughs) I had nothing for for two years, like just nothing.
2: (laughs) You
3: know, I just want to wear my mask all the time now. Yeah,
2: that's
3: it. But you know, but I'm right. But that's that's a different story. Yes. That's <laughs> I carry a whip <laughs> too. Um, <laughs> now, um, Spilsbury, when you talk about him, was he a good pathologist or not?
2: Bernard Spillsbury was a um, let's say very well known. Oh, oh,
3: I I caught on to a series murder mystery in my family. Oh, yes. No. Yes, I know. And I watched like the three, four seasons of it, like I really got like hooked, yeah. and I just thought it was great. Just I, I knew they were never going to really achieve anything, <laughs> but it was a really interesting show, and I really loved the characters. And they, and Spielberg brought up a lot, yeah. And it seemed like it seemed like not in a good way. In a lot of the, his determinations were kind of very questionable, and I just wonder. Mm. And I know he's well known, and he's kind of like considered something. Real famous for that yeah. category, but what what what's your opinion that because you're in that kind of field?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I've I've read a lot about Spilsbury, and you know, got, we, we we hold some of his specimens, as I say, and um, some note cards and things in our collection. And the thing about Spilsbury was that he was. Um, he sort of really got, you know, he came into prominence with the famous case, Dr. Crippen, you know, um, and he was such a personality and he was so, you know, um, very knowledgeable, it seemed, that people didn't really question him. And I think that. Probably that caused a problem later on. So, for a long time, you know, he was known as this eminent pathologist who was, you know, brilliant. He worked alone, um, you know, long hours and, you know, just knew everything about pathology and was really dedicated. But I think there became a point where he wasn't having his work peer reviewed, he wasn't training anybody. Um, and he was sort of, he thought he was so right all the time that he wasn't really willing to bend. And I think one of the most interesting things that we've discovered really since, you know, um, well, and especially since I started to write this book, was about the fact that you know Bernard Spilsbury is the one that said that Cora Crippen had been in you know Dr. Crippen's basement and she was buried in there, and he he said it's this there's a scar here on the tissue. Um, I know that this is the type of you know cesarean scar. I know that Cora had it, so this is therefore her body. And years and years later, in sort of 2012, we had those specimens um, sampled for DNA, and not only are they not Cora Crippens, but they're not even female. so you know so this is the kind of thing where you go well what on earth has happened there (laughs) Um, and he committed suicide i don't know if you know in 1947 he gassed himself um, with you know by the bunsen burners in the lab so he was just very very magnetic personality very interesting but obviously not necessarily always right and i think that caused a problem um but but he did you know start some you know really amazing things as i say it's him who came up with the idea of a um, Scene examiners kit, so he contributed very a lot, a lot as well.
3: I was going to say, he gassed himself. Maybe he worked with Dave for a while. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> you like this every week.
3: <laughs> yeah, just about. Yeah, yeah so that's, that's that's what I'm known for. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but at the okay, so at the end of the day, so someone runs out and picks up this book, which mm-hmm. they should, just for the sheer fun of it Uh, but but what 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 is it do you want people to get something out of the book other than entertainment or a little bit of value is there sort of a a purpose to this
2: i i think um one of the main purposes is to stop stop the word forensic being used in the wrong context because that, that's kind of irritating when you when you work in this world because um, a lot of people will say you know forensic uh, dissection of football match last night you know that kind of thing yeah and I get an awful lot of Google alerts <laughs> to, to tell me really random stories about football matches um, but yeah so I think I think that what I'd like to people to get from it is is the fact that you know we thought we knew everything about Agatha Christie but there was still this sort of little extra part of her personality where she was very and, you know, dedicated to be, being realistic when it came to crimes and crime scenes, um, but also to, to show the hard work that people put in at the beginning of the, that century in, in science and in forensic science itself. You know, it, it really flourished. It's, it's this idea of how hard people were working at the beginning of, of that century to kind of make forensic science flourish. You know, there, there, were, there were other um, scientists in the U.S. and in the U.K., not just Bernard Spilsbury, doing comparisons of hair, you know, human hair to animal hair, um, looking at fingers, nails you know all these kinds of things that then became our basic pathology kit that we used to sort of you know diagnose disease and and help solve murders so you know i'd like people to sort of see that story and and see how hard people worked in these amazing cases that came into the news you know that would show showcase a new technique on blood spatter or um blood group or anything like that really
3: so it's really it's come a long way
2: yeah oh yeah absolutely i mean if you think about it we've only been using dna comparisons since 1986 and that just seems so recent to me now you know having having been talking about you know forensics from 1900 onwards really because edmund locard who is, is the sort of he's the french criminologist that coined the phrase every contact leaves a trace which is basically the sort of forensic science you know basic tenet um he was you know around 1900 1910 is when he was writing 1910 was the dr cripping case you know so all of the 1920s 1930s and 40s like really just amazing um advances in how you look at the rifling inside of you know guns to compare ballistics you know um yeah and going from blood groups where you just say was a or b you know whatever and then being able to kind of define them slightly more um, all of that work that was happening at the same point at the beginning of that century, I think is really important.
3: It was it was a lot tougher too back then, wasn't it, to try and get um, the direction to go in. I would imagine mm. of of what what to look for in forensics.
2: Yeah, and I think from from what I've I've sort of learned from st- like you know research and all these different contributors to the to the science is that, that a lot of them they did it because it was a passion of theirs, and so they would be doing it, you know maybe even outside of their normal work hours. Some some people, you know, had full time jobs as, as, you know, chemical um analysis you know um scientists for say a gasoline company but then they would do other things in the evening on their own time because they believed it was going to be useful for forensics people who examine things like paints um you know different types of chromatography to separate out different chemicals a lot of people just did it on their you know their own dime or on their own time because they felt so passionate about it and that's that's kind of all contributed to, to what we now use and you know hopefully it's helping to catch criminals it's helping to solve cases people who've who've lost family and friends you know and they need some closure um, and they get that because of these dedicated scientists.
3: Do you plan on doing more books kind of like this with other authors?
2: Um I don't I don't know actually because I am still like I'd like to revisit the idea of my bone book now that we can sort of travel around a little bit more. Um I'd, I'd quite like to start, you know, really get into bones as well, because I've done a lot of soft tissues with my Chick-in-the-Dead book, or Past Mortens* it was called, in the UK. Um, so, but I've also got more ideas about Agatha Christie as well, because um, I, I did forensic archaeology and anthropology at military school, and she married an archaeologist, spent a lot of time out at archaeological digs, um, and I'd really like to look into that aspect of her life more actually as well and how she contributed to archaeology in the british museum we've got some items from the digs that she was on with her husband and she cleaned them with her own face cream and things like that um because they didn't really have any guidelines so she was she was sort of like a pioneer in archaeology as well as forensics so um yes yeah, so who knows there's a lot of lot of different avenues i might you know try and go down
4: do you have a, a favorite Ag- agatha christie uh, novel
2: um i get asked this so many times and it's so it's so difficult to say (laughs) i i I always tend to do i'm going to be at the agatha christie festival in torquay in september and i'm going to be part of an event and we're we're talking about our three favourites. i tend to choose three books because i'll usually choose one marple and one poirot and maybe one standalone so i'm going to go with endless night as my favorite standalone um i think my favorite marple is um the moving finger or a murder is announced, it's difficult to choose. Um, and I, Poirot, I love um, Appointment with Death, and I love The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. So it's really, it's really difficult. There's so many books, um, you know, it's too hard to choose.
3: <laughs> what would you tell her? That's the best way. What would you tell her if she was alive today, or if you were alive back then, and you had a mm-hmm. chance to meet her? Oh. Would, would there be anything that you would, Say to her, or ask her, or tell her to do different, or what? How? What would you want to say to her?
2: Oh, I would. I would definitely say, "Um, thank you for being an inspiration to me, and you know, like millions of people. I mean, I'm I'm sure there's a lot of other people that um, read her books and have ended up in in the sort of." field, the forensics field, in one way or another. Um, but for me in particular, I, I, I'd i never really thought about how much of an influence she had on me. When I, when I talk about getting into the field, um, in my first book, Past Mortems, it was actually because I saw my granddad die. So I was about was seven or eight and he, he had a stroke. And at, at the time I was reading Agatha Christie books. And I, as I said, I loved biology at school. And then my granddad died and it was just one of those turning point moments for me where I was kind of, you know, shocked and scared, obviously, because I was only a kid, but kind of wanted to know more about the process so I could be a bit more, you know, better armed, I guess, with the knowledge. And I was fascinated from that point um, with with pathology. So it's not until I started to, to write this book that I realised a lot of that came from reading Agatha Christie's because I just loved to read when I was younger. Um, and I'd already read, you know, all the kids' books by the time I was about six. <laughs> you know, I'd gone through all the Enid Blytons and the Beatrix Potters. And I was on to Agatha Christie at the age of sort of eight and nine. Um, so I would have to say to her, thank you so much for being an inspiration because my, my entire sort of career and all my my um, hobbies are kind of dedicated to this this field, and you know, um, and that was for, that was partly her.
3: So it, it, I have to ask. So do you ever have any uh, um, ghostly experiences with bodies?
2: I have, not you know, and um, I, I I wouldn't say that you know I am I'm, I'm, I definitely believe in ghosts or that I definitely don't. I mean, I I absolutely, you know, think that could be anything um, out there, but it does, I do wonder why I've not really had any experiences. Like, you know, I haven't been around so many dead bodies. But then um, a friend of mine who was she was an APT like me. She, she used to go and see a medium, and the medium said, "Oh, they don't really like to hang around the mortuary. They don't really want to see that. Um, they prefer to go to the funeral home and check that the, the funeral arrangements are being made by the family." Like, okay. So, <laughs> so whether she was right about that, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but in my experience, no, I haven't had anything very particularly interesting happen. <laughs>
3: Oh, yeah, I see because I was just wondering, you know, mm-hmm. maybe some doors <laughs> open or lights go on and off, and you're yeah, I would yeah. think going around with all being so many bodies and so you know it would sort of be,
2: yeah, I do think it come with a territory, like um there's a couple of films about, like the possession of Hannah Grace is one, and there's um, I don't know if you've seen the autopsy of Jane Doe, but I actually was the consultant on that by um the director of troll Hunter, and it, it's about a sort of haunted, mm-hmm. you know body in a mortuary um, and I was like yeah you know I was expecting that kind of thing <laughs> I figured it would go with the territory but no it's, it's all been very peaceful and um, it's it's yeah. live people I have more trouble with always live people
1: well, yeah, yeah it's
2: always no,
3: th- it it's a lot more work right yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's,
2: it's I, don't, I don't enjoy two-sided conversations I'm so used to one-sided ones <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I guess they never talk back. Do yeah, they? I don't
2: need I don't need your opinion because I'm I'm used to I'm used to not getting anyone's opinion. Would <laughs> so, um, oh, you
3: ever talk to them then? Is that sort of?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I think we do that, especially when we're working on autopsies and things, because it's a sort of. Um, it's a respect thing, you know, to kind of call them by their name. You know, Alan, I'd say, how are you today, Alan? Um, you know, make sure that you're all tidy and, 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 and dignified. Um, so, yeah, I think that's just part of the territory, really, because it's just like talking to patients if you're a doctor, I guess. Yeah.
3: Yeah yeah it's pretty interesting what a life (laughs) anyway so now do you have a website set up and do you have uh, social media do you like to interact with fans and people that are interested in this
2: yeah i do indeed so my my um, instagram is um past underscore mortems um and that is where i share a lot of human remains um images from my collection from different research that i do um and different exhibitions I go to, different artists I follow. So that's past mortems. And my website is um, www.carlavalentine.co.uk. Um, and all my socials are on there and everything anyway, because I'm on Twitter and, you know, all that sort of thing too.
3: <laughs> yeah. Did you ever get kind of weird questions? I guess you would.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do, I do get weird questions. I'm, I'm trying to think of some some good ones that I've heard. Um, sometimes I just get questions like, oh, you know, I'm, can you tell me how to pickle my kitten? Or, um, you know, something like, I don't know, you get a lot of strange questions. Yeah. <laughs> it's things like um debunking myths like this idea that the the nails and the hair grow after death and and obviously they don't and actually it's just because the the flesh and the skin dehydrates when you when you die and it sort of it pulls back a little bit and it can make stubble look more prominent it can make fingernails look Mm -hmm. a little bit longer um so yeah i do a lot of debunking myths like that is it true that the dead sit up and burp you know all that kind of nonsense (laughs) not in my experience
4: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which, which, uh, which which created the uh, the fingers and nails, the uh, the vampire and werewolf. Yes, and, yeah, and exactly. That stuff. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Conditions like,
2: Yeah, catalepsy, which what, what people seemed like they were dead. Yeah, and then they get buried alive, and then. Um, yeah. Yeah, later on. And I think it's Caleb Wild is one of my, um, he's a, a U.S. undertaker. He's a sort of a friend of mine. We share books, you know, each other's books and everything. And he's the one who said that um, he always likes to tie the shoelaces of the dead together in case there's a zombie apocalypse, which I thought was very funny. Yeah.
4: <laughs> 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 and just, trip and fall.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can you imagine it? They get out, they get out of the fridge and you, you think, oh, my God, they're going to get me. And then they're, they're like, like dominoes. So, yeah, that's <laughs> <that>. <laughs> it's more It's mortician humor for me. <laughs> That's
4: right. <laughs> well, how was it working on a production? You you had mentioned that that you were working on a production. How did that work for you?
2: It was interesting because um, it, they they obviously pay you to do a job, um, and you know they 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 want your input. But sometimes it can be a case of if we want this scene to look as dramatic as we'd like it to be, we we're going to have to kind of ignore the realism aspect of it mm-hmm. and go with the drama. So we do. A lot of consulting and a lot of also then getting told, okay, well, we totally understand that, but we're not going to go with that. <laughs> and you can know see why, because you know, the, 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 there is, a, you know, you sort of need drama and, Things like that in films, but one thing that I, I was quite adamant about when we did the autopsy of Jane Doe, um, is that they tried to depict the head, um, sort of the scalpels, uh, the, the, the scalp being reflected for you know the examination of the head and the, and the brain. Um, it do, we don't do it across the forehead, obviously, like Frankenstein's monster, um, but they tried <laughs> to do it like that in the film, and I really didn't want them to do that because a lot of us APTs, you know, mortuary workers, we spend a lot of our time trying to. Make family members aware that we don't, you know, disfigure their deceased relatives. So we don't want it to be you know, put into a film. And so sometimes I sort of have to put my foot down a little bit and say, no, don't don't depict it like that or do depict it like this. Um, but it's interesting. It's it's always a, a lot more boring than you think. i like, working on films and, and TV. It's <laughs> lots of very boring mm-hmm. long hours in the cold. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh yeah i'd imagine you know so what's your favorite show type of shows to watch like most haunted or something or
2: well i used to um I, i'll tell you what i do love I- I've already spoken about Murder She Wrote to David or Edie before we we even got started. I, I actually really love things like Murder She Wrote because that doesn't have to be really very realistic, and it's so completely unbelievable. But it's it, so it's it's such a joy to to be you know immersed in that world because it's it's you know it's not triggering or anything. It's just so twee. Um, so I love things like Murder She Wrote, and I love. Um, Midsummer Murders over in the UK. But I watch a lot of things um, like Stranger Things, you know, um, Lucifer, <laughs> things like that. A lot of, um, and the haunting of Hill House, you know, things that are a bit of escap- escapism and a bit of horror, light horror, a bit of light haunting. And that's me for the evening.
3: <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow i mean yeah you, you probably drink tea a lot right
2: yeah i drink gin a lot though as well <laughs> <laughs> there you go yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah no, i do i do my, my husband did get me my own sort of like individual teapot and i do sometimes you know i'm taking a lunch break and i think i'm gonna put an episode of murder she wrote on i'm gonna have a cup of tea and some biscuits with my my individual teapot so there is definitely a sort of tweet english aspect of you know of, of that kind of thing <laughs> Um, yeah. But I think, yeah, it's like the, the the Suchet adaptations, I sort of mentioned the styling on them is so stunning that it's it's a completely different world, you know, and it's, it's like a break for your brain. Um, so I find those to be a bit more of a nice escape, whereas I don't really watch things like Silent Witness because they're too close to reality and then they don't get it right and it can just be really annoying.
4: <laughs> Why do you think
3: that is? You know, I always want to ask that question because uh, quite often whenever we talk to someone in the sciences and different fields like you Yourself. Mm. Um, and and I, I always hear this because they get it wrong or, of course, that's not real and stuff. I, I understand trying to, the, the, some of the shows, they, they only have an hour and they've got to get it all resolved. But yeah. why, do, why do they do things like that that are so wrong? At time. I
2: think, honestly, I think a lot of it is to do with the, either the visuals, um, or, and, and the sort of the act, the enacted drama, because the things that I think of that comes to me, there's a particular image of, um, I think an autopsy was being performed on CSI, and the room was practically Black, you know, it was dark <laughs> because obviously it looked really atmospheric. And I was like, the pathologist is examining this body for, you know, microfibers and all sorts. Like we, we literally have lights, like surgical lights, blazing down on these bodies. We don't do it in in the gloom. Um, and one of my favorite, I, I ran a blog for a long time, um, and one of my favorite scenes is in a horror film called Valentine. I don't know whether you guys have seen it. David Boreanaz is in it, and um, hmm. there's a girl, a med- medical student, and she goes in to do some corpse chopping in the middle of the night you know and she's on her own she's got no PPE on she's got her breast kind of you know popping out of her vest and the guy comes and he kills her and you know and all this stuff and i'm like in in the uk the reality of that corpse dissection you know uh, from um, a donor individual um there was like eight eight people to one cadaver because we don't have enough cadavers you know or enough space for the cadavers you don't go in after hours in the dark (laughs) and you know wave a scalpel around with your breasts out Um, so it's obviously a lot of it is just for entertainment value you know the the way that it looks on screen um yeah it obviously looks a lot more sexy when it's gloomy and you know sweaty breasted
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well you don't wear tight or one piece outfits and, no, there and
2: it's shocking um, it's no, just just scrubs I get them as tight as I can
3: <laughs> <laughs> big heels like yeah. eight inch heels and, <laughs> and walking around the book and,
2: and they did make a change I don't know whether you noticed but the very early series of CSI you know they used to kind of go to these crime scenes in, in Las Vegas and the, the women's hair would be blowing around and they'd be in heels and everything um, but as they got a little bit more sort of like you know as they went through the decade they did start to think hmm, maybe we should make our, our um forensic experts look like experts, you know, put them in suits and things. Um so and then they go they go crazy and they, they do like I don't know whether you watch bones, but they have like this hologram machine that can, you know, recreate the skeleton out of a hologram um spin <laughs> around in the air. So, you know, you, you, you can't really win, can you? You're always gonna have some some crazy scene for entertainment value, I think.
3: Well what about it, it, one of the things that it has been in crime shows and books like right through history and still to this day is they're always establishing time of death and they can say what oh, was he died two hours ago or something right yeah. it, but yeah. it's that's not really true is it?
2: No it's not it's it's, it's funny because I, I, I write about time of death a lot in the autopsy chapter of this book because um a lot of the criticisms from you know about about Agatha Christian and other you know detection um story writers is that they um they do this scene of uh, they do a time of death estimate that's too narrow so basically as you just said you know sort of between two and four p.m and it's it's nonsense even even using we have this really complicated sort of Bit of arithmetic called hence, hence, just a nomogram, which is to help you work out time of death, and it's only accurate to so maybe five hours plus, five hours minus a time, so you can't get accuracy, you know, it's within like two hours. A, a friend of mine, a pathologist, said, I'll be able to tell what time you died if you get shot through the watch. Um, so that was, you know, <laughs> one, of the, one of the really interesting things about Agatha Christie is that, um, Her book, The Body in the Library, which I've completely forgotten about, is also one of my favourites. The Body in the Library, the the alibi from the killers, it revolves around this very tight um, sort of time of death window. And realistically, that that couldn't occur um, because obviously we don't have windows that small. But she's actually been talking about the time of death window from her very first book. And she she recognises and mentions that you can only really be accurate within about four or five hours each side. So when she then uses a tight time of death estimate in the body in the library, I know that she's doing it from... A point of view of an awareness, just if you see what I mean. She knows it's not real, but she still has to use that to keep this particular story going. Whereas in other in other books, she'll make it very clear we can't estimate time of death. You know that that narrowly, really. So she she does both, which which I think is good.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just strange that they keep using that that same yeah. thing over and over again. But I, I,
2: for a while, it was contents uh, for for sort of late um sort of late Victorian and then sort of like to 20s and maybe 30s maybe even a bit later this idea that your gastric contents you know that the state of of digestion could tell how long you'd been you know dead for but it just doesn't work because of the 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 massive amounts of adrenaline and things like that that kick in when you're you know dying it's just too difficult to use it so we don't really use that anymore um but Agatha Christie did talk about that and it was used at the time so she was quite correct in referencing it at the time. just fallen you know from favor since very similar to the, the sort of the Bertillon system we used to use before fingerprints um when we used to use um Alphonse Bertillon's um measurements of the face and how wide the eyes are and the mug shots and all of that and then once we discovered fingerprints were unique there was no need to use all of that stuff anymore you know um but it's interesting to just watch that um, progress
3: yeah yeah and now DNA and who knows Ooh. how far that's gonna go
0: yeah. Well, there's
2: DNA phenotyping now. I don't know whether you've seen this. So um, they can in- enter DNA into a sort of computer system and it will read the DNA and basically build up a picture of what they think the person will look like-ish. You know, uh, eye color, build, hair color, that sort of thing. Um, so it's quite scary. You know, <laughs> they're getting very sort of minority reports out there.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is, it, is, it is kind of, it's something as you get older becomes scarier. Mm. But when you're young, it doesn't seem to matter. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. <laughs> one you know, sort of those. Well, this has been fun. I've really enjoyed yeah. having you on the show. So, now, I- now the book we're talking about is The Science of Murders, The Forensic of Agatha Christie, and that's Carla Valentine. Now, is, is this book available everywhere now?
2: It is, yes. It was a um, Barnes & Noble monthly pick in June um, this year, which was wonderful. So it's, it's um, all over the U.S. It's out in the U.K. Um, under a slightly different name and different, a slightly different cover, um, which happens a lot, <laughs> but it's always yeah. the forensics of Agatha Christie, so people will be able to find it.
3: Well, fantastic. Well, we're going to have your site as well as the book, everything up on our site, so people can find it if they have problems. So, Thank wow. you. It's been a okay. pleasure. Thank you for being here.
2: Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look
4: for the Martino movie reviews.
2: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows,
1: go to www.houseofmystery.com.
4: Show's over for now. Was it as
1: good for you as it was for me?